When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Those are the famous words of the theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And they, the proof that he believed in those is seen very clearly in his willingness to return to Germany in 1939. So friends of his had arranged for him to go to the US to teach theology because they knew that if he stayed in Germany, he'd almost certainly end up in a concentration camp. And so they arranged and he got there and he had a job in the US and then he stayed there for just 26 days. He was safe, but he went back to Germany into danger because he sensed that somehow God was calling him back. You see, Bonhoeffer knew that he was going to die one day. The question was, would he die being obedient to God or not? If you've ever done the Christianity Explored course, you might know that the last session of that course um, picks up on Bonhoeffer's words. The title of that session is Come and Die. It's hardly the most um, appealing title for a session, is it? But that course is clear. Bonhoeffer was clear. There is a price to pay for following Jesus. Being a Christian will cost us our lives. And so I think there are three important questions for us uh, to think about today, whether or not we're already uh, followers of Jesus. First of all, does it really have to be like that? Is it really true that being a Christian will cost us our lives? Secondly, if it is true, what does it actually mean? Come and die. And finally, is such a sacrifice actually worth it? But before we think about those questions, we just need to remember the story so far. Just, just take a look back at chapter 16, verse 20. Then Jesus ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. So last week we saw that great kind of high point in Matthew's Gospel where, Jesus, uh, where Peter finally figures out who Jesus is. He says, you're the Messiah, the Son of the living God. You are the King. God's saviour. It was a moment of great clarity for Jesus and his disciples, but then Jesus responded to them on this very odd note. Don't tell anyone. Under no circumstances must you tell anyone what you've discovered. It was essentially a non-disclosure agreement. It was a total media blackout. Why was that? Well, that is because they'd only just begun to understand half of the picture. So verse 21, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples. So from this point on in Matthew's Gospel, we don't see much of the crowds, we don't see much public teaching, we don't see a lot of miracles, we see Jesus explaining things to his disciples, focusing his attention on them, because they need to understand what sort of Messiah Jesus is going to be. Until they're clear on that, they need to keep what they've learnt to themselves. And the first thing they need to be clear on is this. The Messiah must die to fulfil God's plan. The Messiah must die to fulfil God's plan. Verse 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. 
Uh, capital cities are often the places, aren't they, of high stakes public showdowns. Just think of the storming of the Bastille, the fall of the Berlin Wall, or even in our own city, the, the demonstrations that seem to be taking place every single week at the moment. Jesus says a showdown is coming in the capital city, in Jerusalem. But he says, I'm going to be on the wrong end of it. The whole coalition that makes up the Jewish governing body, the Sanhedrin, is going to defeat him totally. The elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law. He's going to suffer at their hands and he's going to die. Jesus didn't have a feeling that things weren't going to turn out how he was hoping them to do. He wasn't being a little bit pessimistic about his chances. He was being realistic. It, he knew it was a cast iron certainty. He, he must go to Jerusalem. These things must happen. He must die. And all that is far too much for Peter. Verse 22. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said. This shall never happen to you. Have you ever had a moment like that? Uh, perhaps at work, a colleague has said something totally unacceptable, and so you have to take them to one side and give them a bit of a dressing down. Maybe you've been on the wrong end of a telling off like that. You see, in Peter's mind, Jesus has just said something totally and utterly outrageous. It is unthinkable for these things to happen to the Messiah. And Jesus, Peter is absolutely horrified. No way, Jesus, you've got this totally wrong. Never will these things happen to you. But then just as Peter took Jesus aside to give him a piece of his mind, Jesus turns on Peter and with even more indignation in his voice. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. Well, I'm sure you'd never do this, but if you were to call your control freak, vindictive boss a little Hitler, that might get a little bit close to what Peter says here, Jesus says here. But it is pretty hard to imagine a more cutting insult than that, isn't it? Get behind me, Satan. Especially considering that Jesus said exactly the same thing to Satan himself in Matthew chapter 4. Remember when the devil tempted Jesus in the wilderness and Jesus responded, away from me, Satan. Back then, Satan is literally standing in front of Jesus. But now, it's Jesus' closest disciple. It's the one who, in verse 17, just gave voice to God's revelation of the Messiah. And now, the same person is the mouthpiece of Satan. In verse 18 of this chapter, Jesus calls Peter rock man. Now, he says, you're a stumbling block in my path. Why does Jesus have to use such strong, obnoxious language well, it's because Peter needs to learn what we need to learn, that Messiah must die to fulfil God's plan. You see that verse 23? You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. See, Peter has got a human agenda for Jesus. He wants Jesus to avoid suffering and get earthly glory, which is exactly what the devil said Jesus should get back in Matthew chapter 4. Do you remember this? Matthew chapter 4, verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendour. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. 
But a carefree, successful life wasn't God's plan for Jesus. Jesus had to go to Jerusalem. He had to go there to do the things that God was concerned about. He had to suffer. He had to die. He had to fulfil God's plan. Well, we don't get the reasons exactly why here. Jesus is going to explain those over the coming chapters. But as we, if we were to read through the coming chapters, it would become clearer and clearer why Jesus had to die. Just think, for example, of chapter 20, 28. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Think, for example, of what Jesus said to his disciples at the Last Supper. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. You see, Jesus knew that he was the promised suffering servant, the one that had been promised long ago in the Old Testament, particularly by the prophet Isaiah, the one who had to die to take our sin upon himself and in doing so repair our broken relationship with God. The absolute um, unavoidability of Jesus serving us, to suffer, suffering to serve us, is hinted at in these famous words attributed to various different people, but it doesn't matter who wrote them, they are good. If our greatest need had been information, God would have sent an educator. If our greatest need had been technology, God would have been sent a scientist. If our greatest need had been money, God would have sent us an economist. But since our greatest need was forgiveness... God sent us a saviour. Or more accurately, since our greatest need was forgiveness, God sent us a suffering saviour. Now such a suffering saviour was totally unthinkable to Peter. How could God's victorious, conquering king suffer and die? Surely not. But as Jesus makes clear, Peter is simply expressing our natural human instincts. You don't have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Just think how in most sporting contests, the English love the underdog, except last Saturday when the underdog happened to beat us. You see, the only point in supporting an underdog is if the underdog wins. We want our sports stars to be victorious, but it's also true, I think, that as human beings, we naturally want our spiritual leaders to be victorious too. That's what Muhammad was, wasn't he? Victorious army general. In a different sense, that's what the Buddha is. Victorious over suffering because he effectively avoided it. But neither Muhammad nor Buddha nor any other victorious spiritual leader can deal with our need for forgiveness. Only Jesus the suffering servant can do that. Only he could because he became a loser. He suffered and died in our place. He faced the judgment of sin of, of God upon our sin so that according to God's plan, we could be fully and freely forgiven. The Messiah had to die to fulfil God's plan. And it's absolutely vital that Peter understood that. And so Jesus had to correct him in the most uncompromising terms. Do we understand what Peter needed to learn? Are we, are we tuned in in our heads that God's primary concern for you and me is to save us from our sin? Or are our heads a little bit like Peter's, too full of human concerns that Jesus' death has become a small thing to us? 
Well, it's vital that we learn what Peter learnt, because if we don't, we'll never get our heads around what Jesus says next. This is our second lesson. The Messiah's people must die if they want to live. The Messiah's people must die if they want to live. Verse 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. I wonder if you've seen those stories that every now and then appear on the BBC websites about an inmate on death row in the US. There's something kind of that we just want to read about that kind of thing. There's something intriguing that attracts our attention. Something it's about, sometimes it's about someone writing to an inmate. Sometimes it's about someone even marrying them. Sometimes it's about a retrial or an appeal. Sometimes it's about the people who volunteer to witness the executions. There's something about the death penalty which attracts human attention. And it was just like that in the first century too. If you saw a man walking down the streets carrying a wooden cross on his back, you knew where he was going and you wouldn't have been able to look away. He was a condemned man on a one-way journey. The Roman senator Cicero described crucifixion as the most cruel and revolting punishment. The Jewish historian Josephus called it the most pitiable of deaths. It was not only excruciatingly painful, and of course that's where the word excruciating comes from, but it was the ultimate shame for you and your family. And that shame began as you began to walk down the street with a wooden gibbet on your back. Jesus deliberately uses the most shocking language he can think of to describe the Christian life. If anyone wants to be my disciple, they must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. And yet notice that at the same time he says it is our decision. We're free. He doesn't force anyone. Whoever wants to be my disciple. But if we make that choice, and if we choose to become his disciples, if we decide to follow him as our king, then we must be willing to put loyalty to him instead of self-preservation. The Messiah's people must die if they want to live. And the next few verses spell out why that has to be the case. Verse 25. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Bernard Madoff has perhaps got the best name of any convicted fraudster in all history, as he made off with billions of dollars from thousands of clients. But there was a time when he seemed to have it all. He gained the whole world, and yet in doing so, he lost everything. His release date is the 14th of November, 2139. Jesus paints a similar picture to us. He says... We need to decide between the value of this life and true life. He says the stakes are too high to make the wrong decision. If we try to save life and get out of this world all there is in it for us, we'll end up losing our true life, we'll forfeit our soul, the most precious, priceless, real and true life that lasts beyond the grave. It will be forever out of our reach 
A bit like freedom is for Bernard Madoff. Forever out of his reach, there'll be nothing we can do to ever get it back. But if we give up the self-oriented existence that feels so real now, because we want to follow Jesus, we want to put him first, we can be 100% confident that we will gain true life, that priceless, eternal, precious life we were made for in the beginning. But how can we be sure that it's going to work out like that? After all, this life is so real, isn't it? So tangible. It presses its demands upon us all the time. That idea of eternal life often seems far off, irrelevant. Yet Jesus calls for a serious cost-benefit analysis of life versus true life. He says that is the most relevant and pressing demand we'll ever face on our life. Because this life has a sell-by date. Just like Bernard Madoff faced judgment, so will all of us. For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. See, Jesus says a day is coming when he is going to come as the judge of the world. And specifically, he will judge us according to whether or not we've been loyal to him. Have we chosen the safe option? putting ourselves first, making sure we stay safe and comfortable in life, getting as much out of it as we possibly can with very little concern for him. If so, Jesus says that day of judgment is the day we finally lose everything. Or have we embraced the risky business of following Jesus as our king? Have we decided to be loyal to him, whatever the cost? If so, Jesus says that day of judgment will be a day of delight and great rejoicing. It will be the first day of an eternity, enjoying God forever and ever and ever. Jesus is clear, though, there is only one way to enter that wonderful eternity. The Messiah's people must die if they want to live. Well, on one level, Jesus is talking about literal death. That is why he uses such vivid and brutal language. That is why he says they must take up their cross. And several of Jesus' disciples who first heard these words were crucified. Bonhoeffer was hung by the Nazis in 18, uh, sorry, April 1945. Thousands of Christians die around the world for Christ every day, sorry, every year. There may even come a day when we literally are called to become a martyr for Jesus. But even if it's not literal death, the Christian life is a life of at least partial, so partial martyrdom. Taking up our cross doesn't mean random suffering. It's not the suffering that comes from just living in a fallen world. It's the suffering that comes because we're Christian. And that doesn't just mean suffering, that means suffering and being rejected. Because the cross wasn't just a symbol, an instrument of execution. It was also the symbol of being shunned and despised and deserted by people meant being a total outcast in society. Taking up our cross doesn't mean we have to go out there and look for suffering. doesn't mean we need to go out of our way to make our Christian lives hard. I was struck by these other words that Bonhoeffer wrote. He said this, Jesus says they each have their own cross ready, assigned by God and measured to fit. They must all bear the suffering and rejection measured out to each of them. Everyone gets 
for different amounts. They each have their own cross ready, assigned by God and measured to fit. So maybe we're overlooked for promotion at work because we won't bend the rules, which is what's expected of us. Maybe our friends leave us on the edge of a social gathering because we won't do the things they do or speak in the way they speak. Maybe our children will be laughed at or teased or excluded because they trust in Jesus. Now they might feel like relatively trivial examples when we've been thinking about literal death, but in the heat of the moment they feel anything but trivial, don't they? And as we carry crosses like those, and those which are much more severe and much more acutely painful, we're learning to let go of this life, which feels so real, and we're holding on to the life that really matters. In other words, we're learning to die because we want to live. And it's that note of life on which Jesus finishes. It's a, it's a word meant to encourage his first disciples, and it's a word meant to encourage you and me today. So finally, and very briefly, death is coming, but so is the king. Death is coming, but so is the king. Verse 28. Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Well, all those who are listening to Jesus on that day, they're dead, aren't they? So they're not, these words can't refer to Jesus' final return. But these first disciples did catch a glimpse of Jesus as the king, coming in his kingdom. Three of them, six days later, saw Jesus on the top of a mountain, transfigured, transformed, shining brightly like the sun. And God speaking of him, this is my son, listen to him. Most of those disciples listening this day had to wait a little longer until Jesus had literally taken up his own cross. Because three days after he died, he was raised to life and he appeared to them on a mountain as God's chosen, all-powerful king. So they did see him as the king, the living king. Peter couldn't get his head around the fact that the Messiah had to die to fulfil God's plan. But that was the only way God could save us. And wonderfully, it wasn't the end. He rose again. Jesus is coming. Death is coming. But so is the king. Jesus' disciples had to count the cost before they began to follow him. And we need to count the cost too. The Messiah's people must die if they want to live. We don't know exactly, do we, how Jesus will call us to die. But we do know that this life, if we follow him, will be a life of suffering and rejection. He assigns and measures to each one of us our own cross. It is a life of sacrificial risk-taking for him instead of self preservation. It will always be hard, but it will never stop being worth it. So as we finish, I've got two questions which are going to go on the screen, and I'd just like to invite you to spend some time by yourself quietly thinking about these questions. Perhaps you'd like to pray about them. Uh, here they are. In what part of my life is Jesus calling me to take up my cross and follow him? Secondly, am I willing to suffer and be rejected because I belong to him? Or am I avoiding that call on my life? They're there on the screen. Why don't we have a couple of moments to think and pray about those things. Thank you.